just the era we came out in 2007, 2008 was also a transitional time for menswear. And I'm, I can't name names, and maybe I'm even not right about this, but I always had this slight feeling. I was like, some of these dweebs fucking hating on Vampire Weekend, calling them preppy boat shoes, whatever. I know some people by the end of 2008 were wearing boat shoes and button down Oxford shirts and stuff. Not necessarily because of us, but just because, like, we caught the wave earlier than them. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo. My guest this week is the founder and frontman of the two-time Grammy award-winning band Vampire Weekend. He's the pop culture cosign that moves every needle, the creator of the cult show Neo Yokio, and the host of Time Crisis on Apple Music, Ezra Koenig. Ezra and I discuss the world of menswear and connection of prep and gorp culture, being self-conscious of what you wear, why he loves Trey Anastasio, the importance of taking a fit pick every day, music styles colliding, the upcoming Vampire Weekend record, and the future of Gort music. It's the real MVP on the pod. Let's go. Like, because of COVID and everything, I've been, and I'm like on a media, like, overload late at night. Like, what I've been doing is like, I got a pair of nice headphones and I'm listening to like records, like from start to finish. Right. And it's, I don't think I've ever had the experience like I've had. Like I listened to New Morning start to finish and was like, man, I totally get what Bob was feeling right there. And like all of a sudden I feel like I'm this mystic because I'm I'm listening to records the way that they were recorded. And it's like, I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We I don't have like a solid setup and I, I have thousands of records in storage on the East Coast. That's tight. Yeah, to just listen like side A, side B and take it down. That's cool. I mean, yeah, you got to try it. And here's the other thing. And this is which brings me to what you guys have been doing. I I don't know how often you ever go on YouTube rabbit holes, but as we were preparing for this for this pod, I was like, look, I've I've heard you on a gajillion podcasts. I've heard all sorts of like Ezra sidebar. I know the Ezra lore. I know the Duncan lore. Like I'm in, like I, you know, but what I didn't realize is like, I haven't really seen too many, uh, like recent live shows. And I was like, what the fuck? Like vampire weekend turned into this jam band. That is it mind blowing. It's so good. I've, I've watched the ACL show like five or six times. Oh, sick. I'm glad you like it. Yeah. That's, that was one of the bummers about last year on the one hand because of course everybody asked me the past year like oh is, is your business all fucked up <laughs> and i was like we're okay we're okay it's because on the one hand we were incredibly lucky that the record our last record came out in 2019 and you know we got all the important shows out you know big got to play the garden hollywood bowl red rocks all you know all the big shit a few festivals but we were starting to really come together as a live band. We were really starting to like, I think, live up to the promise of like this new big live band. And we were really psyched about not, not because we we're going to be like playing to that to big shows or raking it in or anything, but we were just really psyched for 2020 because we just wanted to keep playing. And we were like going all these like towns. We really love like Burlington, Vermont, Missoula, Montana, Bend, Oregon. So we were just like, so true, truly just like, psyched for it not for promoting the record we were really just psyched for the show so anyway we yeah i think we were starting to like really get into a zone and 
we're going to keep that flame alive for whenever <laughs> we get to do it again. I mean, especially when like for me, watching a band evolve for me is almost more exciting than listening to the music. Because like, I mean, I saw you guys play like right, but well, right before you guys signed to XL. I mean, this is like Chris Chen's super, super early days. Oh, seven. Yeah. This is like VisVim backpack as you guys came back from L.A. Uh-huh. Like that was it was that era. And I mean, and this is with love and admiration, like you guys would play a song and then you play that song at another time. and It would be, you know, basically the same version. And you see like the Vampire Weekend evolution now to where, yo, 2021, like who knows how long that song's going to be? Who knows what the vibe is going to be? Like, I mean, in some ways we even built the record that way. I mean, yeah, I did feel like, you know, it's, it's not easy following up kind of like a trilogy. A trilogy tells a story and then, you know, coming up to a fourth album and, you know, the, the world had changed so much, the, the landscape had changed so much. And I really did feel like, you know, artistically, I wanted to make a double album because I felt like it was time to kind of like throw a bit of a curveball into the discography. But also, I liked the idea that this album would be full of these short songs with untapped potential, which is like, like already, which I just knew that, again, however, most of the fans have responded really well. So that's a bonus. But even outside of that, I think there, because we used to do the play exactly the same every time and touring just felt like this necessary evil to like promote the records. You know, I think you you hit a different phase where you get old and you're like, if this is going to be my life and my job, the touring has to be special. We have to be like really excited about it because, you know, like the feeling of like heading to the airport when you don't want to go and the touring is not creatively fulfilling and the vibes are bad. It's just like, oh, you know, you're walking to the gallows. It sucks. So I knew we needed to change something. We needed to kind of build that into the fabric of the record, the live band, all that stuff. But yeah, like I, I like the idea that well, these short little songs, Sunflower 2021, whatever, could be changing. And I even still think about that now, um, what little things we can do. And I still don't consider us an actual jam band because I have too much admiration for people who actually can cook up a fully improvised new version of something. But you don't think you could do that now? I think you could. Kind of could, but the... You know, in in my 30s, I've just gotten so deep into like <laughs> dead and fish, which, you know, I feel like sometimes some like critics and fans are like, oh, that's what he's like going for now. And it's it's never quite like that. You know, it, just, it wasn't like that with Paul Simon. It was not like that with The Clash or any. It's always, it's always like you. I feel like when you really admire something, you learn from it and you also recognize the ways in which you're different and you could never come close to it. So I think we could we can extend stuff, we can have some fun, but there is something about the way that the the greats truly dedicate their lives to the art form of improvisation that's on some different shit. Now that said, I feel like I, what I what the where I feel comfortable is is I like the kind of like being like a sound check jam band where it's it's not like you're going out without a net every night, but it's like in sound check you've got a ticking clock to be like could we try something a little bit different tonight? Because you'd be surprised how how big of a step that feels when you are in a band that just does the same show every night. To go from that to even something different, to be like, uh, 
in like this is such a goofy example it's not even like it's when we were in uh philadelphia and at some point we started talking about oh should we like do some kind of philly tribute and then you know being from jersey i'm like a huge bruce head so i was like oh should we do streets of philadelphia and i got really paranoid i was like i feel like that'd be cool we could come out of our song unbearably white would flow really nice into that but then i got really nervous and i started calling people i knew from philly and i was just like all right is this corny i don't have like philly goggles on like (laughs) like is this pandering and i was like and people were generally like, no, that's a great song. There's a few corny Philly songs you could do. People, it, it's a good song. You're you're from Jersey. Like, it, it's okay. And then we did it. You know, so we ran it a few times during soundcheck. And, you know, just, I swear, like, the the nerves and, like, you know, my heart was racing. It's like we went into it. And it's not particularly difficult to perform. But just to do something a little bit different, if you're not in that zone of, like, every night you do that, those things do kind of, like, make you feel a little bit alive. And, you know, I think if it works, the audience appreciates it. Uh, if it doesn't, you know, back to the drawing board, but yeah, again, it's just a simple example of how the, these small things like that make touring so much fun. And I, and I think ultimately the audience catches that vibe off of you, but yeah, in the future, I want to go a little bit deeper and we already have a bit, but you know, anybody can play streets of Philadelphia and Philadelphia. I do. I, yeah. I like the idea of having, many iterations of like a sunflower for instance you know yeah i mean it's it sounds a tiny bit like you're second guessing some of these things like have you have you had that moment yet where you were like i'm a fucking rock star like like just just to pause one second you've won grammys you won multiple awards you've sold uh millions of albums um you as an aside, thank you uh, from when I was at XL. I have one of your, uh, I think it's a platinum record of. Oh, really? Or, or, no, it's a, it's a gold record of uh, Contra oh, <laughs> at my house. Uh, <laughs> but like, there's all, all like that massive list of accomplishments. And you think about, I don't know, weird like 70s hair bands that had none of that. But they would walk out being like, fuck you guys if you're not into this. Well, you know, I alternate. There, there there's a huge part of my personality and my relationship to art that that is fuck you but i believe i try not to like let that take over uh publicly because i kind of feel like you know if you put some fuck yous into the music either people get it or they don't and like you know you still just go out and be nice and polite and stuff um, so I'm not, I'm not against contrarianism or like, fuck you if you don't get it. Like, yes, that's, that's <laughs> the way that I think. But I guess when I talk about the live show and stuff, like I, I like to stay in that kind of like slightly, uh, nervous bubbly space because at the end of the day, we've made it through, you know, by by any kind of reasonable metric for successful albums which is really hard and i don't know how long we can keep that up we'll see but the one thing i know is that through all four again whatever order people put them in or whichever one is their favorite they've all come from the same kind of place of of kind of like a nervous handmade amateur vibe so you know what i mean like i just want to kind of stay in that forever and and the people i admire i think tend to 
um, which which basically means that you're never you never quite feel like you're a, a rock star. And I mean, again, rock stars are a hilarious thing to apply to Vampire Weekend. Our things always been a little bit whether it's the preppy stuff or what you know it's like never been rock star vibes but I, I like staying in that that space of uh yeah i don't know how to put it like amateur stuff like some of the, you know this year is mostly about recording and making the next album but we got a few s- small fun things planned and uh, the things that we get the most excited about are so small and handmade or whatever that that's just where our if we have any strength, like that's where it comes from. So I feel like you guys also have, you have it a lot more difficult than, you know, I would say at least the bands that maybe you look up to now in the sense that, or like, like previous bands, like no, like Simon and Garfunkel never had an Instagram. No one would try to have gossip about any of their private life because you couldn't really see it. Right. Like you knew that, like, oh, man, they got really mad at each other. Oh, no, I could, you know, but like that was it. And but what's also weird is you get like this polar experience of that in the sense that you also have like fans who feel like so deeply connected to you guys because of the access that they have, where it's like, if I want, I can basically have this very in uh, in depth relationship with you and the band from your music, from your Instagram account, from Neil Yokio, from uh, Time Crisis. So I like I can have this like built up sort of world of who you are in my head that when I do listen to your music, like the connection is far deeper than anything that say someone of like that listen to Simon and Garfunkel listen to. Yeah, I I think up yeah up to a point. I mean, I think people. Yeah, I, having not been around then, it's it's hard. People obviously got very obsessive with music, but of course, you're right. The access was different, and the I, I'm in some ways I'm a traditionalist about music because everybody I've ever met who's cool, whether they're younger than me, older than me, whatever, kind of agrees that in the long term, all that really matters is songs, and you know, a lot goes into a song lyrics performance production all that stuff but like songs and having songs and having a catalog is kind of all what all that really matters and i'd like to think that one way or another whether you're dealing with the chaos of living in social media times or you're dealing with like i don't know like whatever the simon garfunkel version was (laughs) 1960s whatever there's with all that stuff, all that noise and chaos that can surround uh, an album campaign, an, an artist's life, whatever, I'd still like to believe that when the dust settles, whatever area you're talking about, if you've created a body of work that has strong songs in the catalog, there will be a group of people to like uh, support it and be down for it. Um, or at least I tell myself that. Because you're right. There's like, If you look at some of the noise that involves any type of like public life now, which is you definitely don't have to be in a band to, you know, you could be some random person with 2,500 followers on an aesthetic Instagram account and be, be like, you know what? The world's bullshit, man. The way you people <laughs> anybody can experience that. So yeah, I think you need to have these long-term visions of like, which for me in, in my life is, is telling a long-term story, building a catalog. Right. Yeah. 
that's what's interesting to me. And I'd like to think that, you know, so I get really excited about the idea. I don't know how many albums we'll make long term. I know I'll have at least five, but sometimes I think back, like, what if one day we have 10? What's like the arc going to be? What's the story going to be? Where will we have gone? And I, I'd like to think building that will be so much like bigger than, you know, the petty little things you have to deal with every day by going on Instagram or whatever. Yeah. I mean, but do you really think it's linear? Um, like, like the, the discography part or yeah, the discography. Cause I mean, you said like, Oh, you know, maybe you have 10, but like, like what's the story through that? Um, well, yeah, I think it's linear in the sense that the, it's just the way that I think I've always been as a fan, I've always been obsessed with discography and I've, I've put probably too much thought into what, what does a first album do? What does a second album do? What's the third album do? Um, and I think, you know, you look at these amazing arcs in somebody's career and I'm always trying to be cognizant of that. You're looking hindsight's 2020, but you see the way that people make unusual choices, some that alienate one type of fan, some that win another type of person back, some that make people go back to the early stuff and think about it differently. I think, so it's not linear in that sense. I think you, you know, it's right. a, something you can s- scrub through forwards and backwards. But I do think there is a, the artists that I like the most tell some type of story with their with their albums. And to me, the, the absolute worst fate is when y- you get to like that phase a lot of people get to where you're like your second or third in, in a row that's like just chugging, not worth getting psyched about, not worth getting angry about, <laughs> you know, just like, <laughs> all right. You know, like that, that to me is when you got to kind of pack it in. Um, so yeah, we'll see. Those bands definitely exist. And that's always pretty unfortunate. So if that's the case though, and then I promise we're going to talk about clothes, but I've, I've always loved and admired your music so much that this is also fun for me. Um, so Father of the Bride then is Wallflowers. Oh wait, Tom Petty Wallflowers or the band? Yeah, no, no, no. Like, okay, because here's the, well, first off, Jacob Dylan, all praise, but Wallflowers because, so you got Ariel was on it. Yep. Right. And Ariel is basically going to be Rick Rubin in 30 years. Um, if he's not already. He's yeah, he's kind of a young Rick. I can see that. <laughs> and then you have Father of the Bride is like a little bit more of like more Ezra. It, there's it, there is obviously a lot of vampire weekend in it, but it's it's also, I feel like for me, the the relationship is is Ezra. And then it's a double album. Mm. And there's a lot of experimental stuff to it, but at its at its heart and at its core, it's like perfect, beautiful pop music. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, yeah, there's a lot to say there. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think of it as being more me in some ways because we had more collaborators on it. It in some ways feels like less me, but I, I understand like that. One thing's for sure. It's like definitely the most grown up album which I didn't, when it came out, I definitely took pains not to present it that way because I didn't want to like predetermine what it was, but I did have a little bit of like a fuck the kids mind, mindset when we when we made it a little bit just because it was like, it was such a funny time to come back after six years and to to be like... It was six years? Yeah, it was six years in between albums. See, that's also another funny thing that happens. The time gets compressed after it happens. So like, it felt like in this endless six years at the time. And now looking back, it's like, and I think the next album is going to be a lot quicker. So we'll see. But 
Yeah, Wallflowers is interesting. I mean, just because, again, I'm like a music nerd. I know that Petty was older at that point. Like, you know, True. I haven't traveling Wilburys yet. So I can't, <laughs> I don't know if at Wallflowers. I know what you mean. I mean, the, the record, there are two records that to me really were the model for it. One was 69 Love Songs because I admire Stephen Merritt so much. And I was like, I love just like, uh, I look up, of of all the types of like singers, whatever you want to call them, front people I look up to, I like the ones who are like songwriters and nobody's more of like hit that whole project is basically being like, I'm a fucking songwriter. Here, let me cook it up 69 different ways for you. Give me a topic. I'll, you know, so there's, uh, there's an element of that. And then Bruce Springsteen, the river. Cause to me, I, I could see myself. And, and again, I, I, I'm, I always feel like I have to say, just if I reference something, I'm not putting myself on the level of these people. Just you know, I'm I'm only these are the these are the people I look up to. You're okay. But when when you think about Bruce Springsteen, The River, which in some ways is like an underrated album, it's not quite as celebrated as uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town, which came before. But the thing that I love about it is Darkness on the Edge of Town, dark as fuck, as the name implies, in many ways. And then The River, he goes even darker in some ways, just like just writing about like seeing like a car crash or like the song, the river is so heavy, but he like paired it next to little girl. I want to marry you. And, and like Sherry darling and the goofball shit. And there's just something about Bruce, as I referenced before, maybe sharing some geographical heritage. I can't help, but be a fan. Um, But I've, when I think of some of like the, the real classics, like the greatest of all time types, uh, and I won't say the negative ones, but I've <laughs> always admired people who can, I don't know, like uh, present the the different modes of life, like can can go deep into a dark zone because we all do, um, but also kind of come out the other end and put together a record like The River that uh, oscillates between those modes of life. Because to me, that's always just felt the realist, like even when even when i've been the most depressed in my life and had the darkest thoughts or you know the least optimistic about the future there's still was like a touch of humor about it maybe gallows humor but you know there's like a little bit of a uh I, there's still some people i could have a, a laugh with them I, I know not everybody feels that way but yeah i like these so in some ways i like that this record where you've already made a lot of statements in your career Mm-hmm. used to make a double album that kind of throws a lot of stuff together as a way of saying this is like the state of how I feel about my life and the world right now and, and kind of about being an adult that's another thing I like about The River is like I was very cognizant of that coming back and dropping a, a record when we're all in our mid-30s because literally the first three were all in our 20s we were like there were songs uh, on the first album that I wrote when I was a teenager so you know like very much young adults in the early days. So I was very cognizant too of like looking for those turning point records where somebody cause figured out, can I, can me and my audience like grow up together a little bit? <laughs> cause fortunately the answer is often no. And you don't, and the, you can still have a career without growing up with your audience, but I really want to have songs that I can play when I'm, you know, in my fifties. That's mm. all I don't think about when you're in your 20s is 
when you look at who you admire of like older people and who you like to model yourself after, you don't quite think about like that just changes a lot the older you get. Cause yeah, if you, if I looked at like the generation above me when I was 20, you know, those, those people were still only like in their late twenties, early thirties. But now I can look at people I know who are in their fifties and I can really, even though I'm still, you know, 15 years away from that, I could still, I don't know. I, I can really imagine what that's like. And I can close my eyes and visualize what type of songs will I want to be like playing with, with my friends, you know, what, 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 what are, you know, when, when the guys get together, what are we going to have a good time talking about and doing? And, you know, it's just, it's a little different. Oh, damn. That's kind of heavy thinking about that. Yeah. And, and here's my, my soundbite version of it is <laughs> when I think of all the New York based uh, singer front men that I've met over my life, the one that I currently admire the most is Trey Anastasio because Trey in his 50s is just like 10 times more like vibrant and fun. His just life looks cooler. His approach to music is cool. You know, it's just like, really? Yes, very much. Is it is that because of like it, the lifestyle that he lives when he's not playing music? Like he just because I, I don't ever I don't see him as being someone that's and I mean, and I was a fish head for a tiny bit, but like I never saw him as someone that was accessible. Like he's a he's a, an amazing songwriter, but I don't feel like I can empathize with anything else that he's ever written about. You know, there is a documentary uh, about him that came out a year or two ago that kind of gives you kind of get to meet more of his family and hear a little more of his story. So you can you can fill in some of the blanks. But, you know, let's there's a lot of people you only think, you know, what's going on with them. But I just mean, even in terms of uh, the approach to his career and stuff, the kind of fun stuff that he does on his own or with fish, both. And then I think about. And, you know, you, like if anybody's followed Fish and, you know, you could go back and watch um, Bittersweet Motel, that doc from back in the day. And, and you, there's a part where the director reads him a bunch of like negative reviews. And it's like worth remembering that back then they had some of the most passionate fans ever. But there were also. Again, I don't want to like be, be negative by naming other people, but there are many bands that in the mid 90s would have been considered cooler than fish oh for sure like that's not a controversial thing to say visualize those people in your head and picture them in their mid-50s and picture trey and really think about who you'd rather be think about whose life more embodies joy and love of music who still has room to be creative it's it's obvious and um anyway and this is the fact that he he lives in new york city i love too he's he's from new jersey too um, right. but, I, I, but I, I really do feel like, you know, these are things that you think about when you get older is like who, you know, when you're younger, it's just like, what music do I like? What, what's cool? All that. And then you start to really think about, um, yeah, what does it mean to, to be in a band past the age of 30? It's very different, you know, than well, and what a band is now is very not what it was. Like even from a business side and, and in, in terms of 
publishing rights. And I mean, you look at like, so like Isaac Brock and Modest Mouse. Mm. Modest Mouse is Isaac Brock. And if you play with him while you're on tour, you get cuts of publishing and stuff. But like, it's it's him. And and you look at like newer music now and you think of like the, like Billy Eilish and um, like just like massive, massive sort of, they also have like machines that are behind them. And like, I, I don't, I don't, like that was never fish like that that the machine if there was it was a community right well yeah 100% i mean they worked really hard to to show the fans that they cared i mean there was like a, a they were united in one goal with their fans and what they wanted to accomplish creatively and and also yeah musically there's not doesn't get much more bandy than that four <laughs> people four different instruments improvised together so in some ways, that is you could, maybe you could say jam bands are the last place that bands really live because you don't see it in you don't see it in indie rock or alternative or something. Jam bands are the place where like the whatever that old spirit of a band of like different people coming together uh, still lives. And like in Vampire Weekend, we do have some of that too. I mean, I don't think it's not unusual that bands might have a, a primary songwriter or primary leader. That's not weird. Or, uh, you know, two people who are kind of like a brain trust, like none of that's unusual at all. You could find that in, in most bands, but I think there's a lot of room in between, um, that and, you know, the, the band is a vehicle for one person because that's not what vampire weekend is. And truthfully, like, you know, so much goes, so much goes into a band. Like I was making a big deal about how important your songs are. I do think it's the most important thing, but then there's a million other things that follow from that, the decisions you make. And of course the live show and how you present things. There's a lot of bands that, um, where sometimes as I've gotten older and I meet more people from like old bands and stuff. And you know, in your, when you're young, you can sometimes get really hung up on like, well, who wrote the song or who did that? And you want to like learn about all that stuff. I do find a lot of times there's a, a kind of uncelebrated figure in bands that I sometimes learn about just from going deep with people where you kind of realize like, oh yeah, that dude was the songwriter. That dude made like, you know, he created the guitar sound or whatever. But then sometimes you find this other dude whose name wasn't in the credits quite as much was like kind of like a guru figure or something. A guy who just knew it was cool and what wasn't. You know, it's like, it's it's a mm-hmm. figure because they they don't have the the CV isn't quite as like stuffed as like the person who wrote that song or produced that thing or wrote that guitar part. There is the, these figures and some look sometimes they're outside the band. They could be a friend, a manager, or something. But oftentimes they are, and that's a person who's like the can be like the conscience of the band or like the soul or something, um, and definitely there's something so yeah there's that there and we could go we could have a whole conversation about these other types of roles that exist outside of like celebrated roles in bands but i swear a lot of times you find that you start talking to people in some band where you thought it was all about one person or about two people and then you kind of hear like oh no that person like they they dipped in and just made some very significant calls they just understood the band or something I am curious what what the garm what the garm trade has been like with you lately because 
Here's the thing is like you are a secret cosign for tons of brands. Like any anything that you that you like, that you that you fuck with, any of that stuff, like people like when you think of like the like all the clothing heads, they're like, yo, Ezra's into it? Yo, Ezra fucks with that? Like you have a very, very large cosign. Oh, that's nice to hear. I mean, I I did feel I felt, you know, in the early days, I was going pretty out there with some of the preppy stuff. And that was kind of my whole concept for the band was like, this is going to be a preppy band, you know, because I found it funny and, you know, whatever. But there were times when I felt like some of the pushback was so intense, it made me a little bit gun shy where I was kind of like, oh, people like, yeah, be careful. Clothes are powerful. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But also, I, I also had a feeling, too, where I was like, just the era we came out in 2007, 2008 was also a transitional time for menswear. And I'm, I can't name names, and maybe I'm even not right about this, but I always had this slight feeling. I was like, some of these dweebs fucking hating on Vampire Weekend, calling them preppy boat shoes, whatever. I know some <laughs> people by the end of 2008 were wearing boat shoes, button down Oxford shirts and stuff. Not necessarily because of us, but just because like we caught the wave earlier than them. I mean, you were on top of the wave. You, you helped start the wave. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go that far, but may you know maybe for some people, even even the like this is a year before Father the Bride came out, but we had to just like kind of get back in the saddle, start posting shit more on the Instagram, <laughs> and just started like posting some pictures. And at that point, for like years, I'd been wearing socks and sandals. And again, I'm not. I'm really not purporting to. I'm. I'm sure some some real, you know, garment heads on this wave ahead of me. But even then, it's funny to notice how much like these old biases, people cling so tight to them. So I'm posting that shit. I swear, like even some people I respect just being like, bro, socks and sandals, you fucking crazy. Cause they're still remembering some fucking joke they heard in, in 1993. <laughs> <laughs> like p- these things die hard. The same with the preppy shit. People are still thinking back to John Hughes movie. They saw, on you know Sunday afternoon when they were a kid, just being like, "Bro, you can't wear a collared shirt." Anyway, <laughs> a little bit of that energy, and then I just you know, again, I'm really not trying to say that we did it because I, I truly recognize if there's a wave, we're not at the. There's other people ahead of us in the lineup, but I but even that, I just kind of noticed like just the the number of people holding that that funny hatred for socks and sandals just like went down because like you see it and you're just like. It's just a regular thing. It's like hating on basketball shoes. Like it's just like there's there's a lot of times where that's like the right thing to wear. Like True. relax. So anyway, I I it, it's nice to if, if somebody out there is respecting us, respecting me, that that's nice to hear because you know, maybe being in a band, you're on the front line with like hardcore reactions from people. You're just like, come on, chill out, have some fun. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all the stuff you guys were were wearing, but like you especially was also like the super cool Japanese looking stuff. Like when you think about, you know, there was like some military pants with like chacos and socks and then like some tie dye because this was this was way before people were were like trying to get into all Gorp stuff. You guys were at the very, very front of the, you specifically were at the front of the Gorp wave. Maybe as far as bands go. Yeah, again, because I don't know who's listening to do you think people are going to come at you with this? No, no, they won't. Well, I'm just like, you know, my, my impression of the world is full, full of crazy people trying to, <laughs> shit. you know, that's, 
I wouldn't have it any other way, but that is the, <laughs> so I, I guess I'm also just saying like, I don't know if, if the, if the audience were getting like some real hardcore garment heads and, you know, cause I know my shit about music. Like I know who did what first, but in this world, I don't want to get into that shit, but yeah, definitely in the back of my head over the years of making father of the bride, I had a slight feeling and I don't want to hold on to this too firmly. Cause I already work on the next album going in different directions, but I had a feeling I was like, you know what? I made the preppy trilogy. This is going to be the Gorp trilogy. Oh shit. A little bit. I, but again, I can't fully, I can't fully commit to a full Gorp trilogy. And it's also funny too, is that I like part of my and vampire weekends artistic process. I really love going back and forth between visual and sound stuff. And sometimes I do think that I'm actually, that that's actually stupid. Um, that there's times where I like, so for instance, and again, I, I truly, I'm being influenced by cooler, more innovative people than me. But I do remember when I, let's say when I really started working on the father, the bride in earnest, let's say that's like 2015 or something. Okay. There's some people talking about Gorp, but it's world is not as gorped out as it is right now. Six years later, so in 2015, definitely noticing I'm going to see my one of my dearest friends, Grateful Dead cover band, Richard Pictures, playing in LA. I'm already just like, this is the best rock music. This is the best band I've seen in years. Um, and kind of noticing, you know, like people like a Mr. Mort, who's uh, uh, still. Had, I'm very proud to own two of his very limited edition um, Manistash fleece. That's right. That I think is one of the greatest of all time. Noticing that shit and kind of, you know, also seeing like, um, you know, like young rappers wearing vintage Grateful Dead shirts. Um, all that stuff kind of happening at the same time made me feel like I want to, I want to imagine a kind of like, indie jam gorp tech kind of music and then and that's the kind of shit that i like to do just like when i first thought of starting this band with other guys i did have this vision of a preppy collegiate you know african guitar meets paul simon meets talking head you know like it's fun to mood board like that and then try to make the sound that sounds like that Anyway, that's all to say, occasionally I go so down those far down those rabbit holes and then I realize like, you know what? Smarter, cooler people, they just throw on the Grateful Dead shirt and then just, you know, download some beats off YouTube and, and <laughs> reverb. Like that that's actually that's working smarter. Sometimes I think I work too hard for uh for little things that not a, not enough people give a fuck about. I'm not I'm not trying to be negative. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just think maybe maybe People who care about clothes might kind of know what I'm saying. You like, second-guessed yourself like three times by explaining your vision, man. No, man, you created the vision. You you ride that lightning, man. I'm also, because I'm working on the next record, I'm naturally in like kind of a reflective state. Ah. Like, well, look, I wouldn't change anything, but this is how I think. You know? <laughs> um, so, like, it was important for me to like, I guess what I'm saying is like, I had a very specific vision of what gorped out music might sound like in in 2019 and spent a few years trying to like kind of get to it 
Because what I don't like is when people. Okay, now I'll say it in a more confident way. That was like, <laughs> you're okay. This is the confident way. <laughs> like these motherfuckers who just go do their basic ass music and then just throw a hiking boot on it. Because I don't hear the hiking boot. Because you weren't fucking <laughs> going back, showing respect to Trey and the people who made this shit. You're going to just go buy your fucking Japanese overpriced fleece and not pay respect to the people who built up fleece culture. <laughs> In Vermont? Nah, nah, okay, I'm going off the rails here. But you know what I mean. That's the confident version of it, where it's like, man, you know, you never even played any Mixolydian shit in your whole life. <laughs> Whoa. Fucking throwing on a vintage tie-dye. Get the tie-dye socks and sandals. Get the fuck out of here. That's anyway, <laughs> confident version. <laughs> but, uh, no, but truly, I, I like to hit it from the confident and the second-guessing angle because I do like that shit. That's built into the fab, no pun intended, <laughs> That's built into the fabric of the band is to kind of like not just dress up one one thing with one's a sound with clothing is to look for like the the commonality, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. So like what what's been some of the recent stuff that you've gotten? Clothes wise. I was thinking about this coming on a a a fashion podcast in when I've bought so little over the past uh, year, you know, just because things have kind of quieted down. I mean, well, speaking of Gorp, I happen to be wearing today this I saw vintage Fruitopia shirt. So I got <laughs> shout out um, Jonah Weiner, who I'm sure you know. Yeah. A major Gorp figure and somebody that I've actually had some very important conversations with about, you know, Vampire Weekend, Gorp, Blackbird Spy Plan, you know, all this shit. Like, we kind of understand each other, I think, in a deep way. We're riding different waves, but, you know, mm. occasionally high five in the middle. Um, so he knew that he, post, he posted this in one of the newsletters, but I think he, he actually hit me up. He's like, you, you probably want to get this because it's so much that the aesthetic that we were kind of dipping into of like spiral everything. So the front, it's kind of unfortunate because the front is like a little bit embarrassing. It's like cool 90s fonts. But it says something about uh, how passion fruit is an aphrodisiac. And you're kind of like, so sometimes people see me wearing this, like, wait, what does that say? And I was like, don't worry about it. But <laughs> a subsect of Gorp, or maybe a, uh, let's say a cousin of Gorp, which I also find very interesting, is, is an aesthetic that some people refer to as global coffee house. <laughs> and yeah. I, think, I think they fall under the same umbrella, Gorp, global coffee house. Um, that's something that I've been very interested in. Um, and you know, it's also funny with all these things, even talking about Gorp versus prep is like, you know, when, when you make a trilogy, it's, it can be very difficult to know what comes next. Um, actually one of my new metaphors recently, cause I was getting so deep into Sergio Leone. If there's any Leone heads listening, you might know this. I was like, when you complete something to real figure out what comes next, it's very difficult. And I kind of realized like the first three albums are the fit are the dollars trilogy, the Clint Eastwood trilogy. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one is once upon a time in the West. And actually it really connects on a lot of levels, but I won't go any deeper into it than that. But anyway, the, I'm also, the funny thing is like Gorp and prep are so connected. Oh yeah. Um, like, and may, you know, maybe it was like always faded that 
we'd make an album like Father of the Bride because especially where where I grew up, when I would look at these like my friends' older brothers, there was a type of dude who wore North Face with a hemp necklace, mm. soccer and smoked weed. And that was kind of like the the masculine ideal of the little town I grew up in New Jersey. Like my family, there's nobody like that in my family. My parents are like kind of like urbane Upper West Siders vibes. Like they don't really fuck with that type of person. But I was there. So I had to look at these people and say like, kind, you know, in a, in a way, look up to them. And they would always wear like khakis, maybe some like dirty ass New Balances or Sambas. And um, they would... They would all. They would often go to like Dave Matthews concerts. <laughs> I knew Dave was going to come up. I was waiting. <laughs> but then the really cool ones, actually, the really really cool ones, they'd be of course deep into Fish and the Dead, Bob Marley, always listen to rap too because you know this is the the nineties. So they would you know have all Biggie, Biggie, Biggie and String Cheese incident within five minutes of each other. <laughs> um. And then, you know, occasionally some of these people would be like, I remember there's one dude like that who's older than me. And my friends that said, told me that he had, um, he was into um, uh, Neutral Milk Hotel too. And I was kind of like, man, that's so much cooler than a regular Neutral Milk Hotel fan. <laughs> like way more into that concept of that guy listening to that, like just getting high after a soccer game and throwing that on. Some of his boys being like, bro, what is this? And just like, that's pretty good, man. Have an open mind. All right. There was something about that vision seemed way more interesting to me than than the other people I knew who like Neutral Milk Hotel. Um, so anyway, I, I guess I've, obviously we could probably like come up with like ten outfits and literally make a spectrum from hard prep to hard gorp, and we know exactly who's going to be in the middle. It's like this guy is going to be somewhere in there. You know, it's like at a certain point you got to swap out the khakis for maybe some like cargoes and then eventually it's going to become some sort of like nylon techie <laughs> he's gonna say yeah zip pockets <laughs> the middle of that spectrum is a lot of fleece so anyway i think those things are so interrelated yeah and you you it's it's easier for you too because you live in like fleece weather la like you're, you're not you're not getting heavy tweed jackets you're not you're not busting duffel coats out there it's it's just a grab a fleece people think i'm just such an ungrateful little jerk but you know i i've been here too much like with covid this is the longest i've never been on the east coast i'm I'm dying i'm just east east coast it's just in my blood i need the cold weather and people i talk to people on the east coast i'm just like oh man well and okay this is before like the the deadly weather that was like really you know fuck fucking with people in other parts of the country but before that you know talking to people on the East coast when it's like 20 something, just like, um, you know, talking to me and FaceTime and they see like the sun shining on the deck. And I'm just kind of like, it's like, Oh man, that's so nice. It's, it's brick out here. And I'm just like, man, I'd trade places with you. Like, Fuck out of here. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> I really think I would because yes, it's, n- it's nice to not have to bundle up, but that's when I feel more like myself. I, I like to bundle up and all that, but, but yes, um, <laughs> what are, what are the house slippies? I go back and forth because I always end up. It's a problem. I always end up wearing them outdoors. I mean, 
I, I haven't nailed it, frankly. And and I'm still in this funny phase where I got a lot of clothes and storage. So I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. I've never found the perfect flipper. Um, there's a while where my girlfriend got me some uh, fleece-lined Crocs, which are very cozy. Mm-hmm. But then invariably I end up wearing them outside. And then I'm like, I don't want to wear them back in the house until I wash them. And then, and then they become outside shoes for like a couple months. And are then- you in no shoes on inside house? Try, try to say that. Yeah. Um, So those were good. The fleece line Crocs are good, but then because they're wearable outside, you know, that, that they they can make the transition. Uh, Yeah. I've never quite nailed it with, uh, with them. And then with, with the slippers, I wonder, Um, just a pair of socks is okay. Do you, uh, this is a serious question here. Do you have like writing clothes? Like I'm, I'm gonna write. I'm gonna work. I gotta, I gotta put on the uniform. No, but it's, it's, it's funny you ask that. It's crossed my mind more lately because I think the usual things that I would do to kind of just like get the blood flowing creatively, you know, like a lot of writers. <laughs> um, I one of my favorite things to do would just be like roll up to a restaurant or, or a coffee shop, post up start scribbling little whimsical musings on my <laughs> notes app. Um, and, you know, you do that enough, you get you get a 30 minutes of uh, uh, inspiration a day, mm-hmm. you know, you get, pretty soon you're going to have some complete songs and things like that. So not being able to do that during COVID, um, or at least, you know, in such a limited, more stressful way, like, has made me start to think more about like, Oh, do I need to like go do something a little more formal in when I like have a cup of coffee in the morning, such as like, yeah, make sure I'm not just like wearing my bathrobe and like sitting in the same part of the house. I always do. Like, should I, yeah, dress up a little bit. Like if I was going to, you know, as if I was going to a a coffee shop where the world might lay eyes on me and I might want to, you know, look decent. So it's crossed my mind. I don't quite have it, but it, it, yeah, of course, it makes a difference to put on real clothes. I'll take a fit pick every single day, but I'll only post him it's pretty rarely. But I like will think in my head that I'm gonna like I gotta I gotta wear something for the fit pick, so at least I feel like I put enough stuff together that I can go and do other things, and then I feel more productive. That's smart. I think I should do that. I think the I, there, I think there's a, a part of me from like the being in a band that kind of felt a little bit like you have to go be so on display for a certain set of time like when you're releasing a record or touring that you gotta you're gonna be more self-conscious about how you look you know the same way anybody is like oh you got your picture taken and you look at you're just like damn my haircut looks fucked (laughs) up or like you know i gotta work out i don't know you know you think about things differently when you see pictures of yourself and then there have been times where I go like deep into like studio mode, just like not giving a fuck about anything and then kind of start to think more about presentation again. But I think I, I like this. I-, I like the idea of doing a fit pick every day just for yourself. Yeah, just for yourself. Give yourself one present every day. I like that. Um, what is when you grab your guitar, what's the first song you play to warm up? Um, I mean, the, the, the real answer is I'd, pro- I'd probably be play play whatever i've been working on lately so, you know, like so for instance I, I just know the past few days i've had 
this kind of new riff and i every time i pick up the guitar i start playing that um so usually usually it's something that i'm working on and and sometimes i'll often write something that where the part is better than i am as a guitarist so sometimes i need to just like kind of woodshed it a lot just to even get it um uh passable um but yeah that feels kind of lame just to say i play my own stuff but <laughs> that's fine um, you know like sometimes i'll honestly I'll, I'll go through periods lately where i'll I'll just run scales in different positions whoa flex well yeah that kind of goes back to you know the the band thing at this point our live band we have some significant shredders i'm probably one of the worst Dude, musicians uh what brian robert jones right like he's the man an amazing addition to our organization <laughs> so in some ways if yeah th- there's a version of vampire weekend we we could probably do some like crazy shredder jam and i could just stand at the back just on some like real minimal <laughs> <laughs> rhythm shit but i do like because, you know, first and foremost, as I've been saying, my, my mind is always on songwriting. That's the thing that I, I love the most. I, I'm, I, I get it's most interesting to me. And, and that also, I think, is my job, you know, that I, I that's what I got to do. But, of course, these things are interrelated. And, like, they're when, when the band first started, I was very, uh, I felt like all my best ideas came out of, like, pure naivete. Like, mm. you know, writing, like, the A-punk riff, which in some ways probably, like, I hate to say it, but probably the most important guitar part I'll ever write in my life. But just, like, it it was this thing for us, and it kind of still is. And, you know, that truly comes out of naivete. Like, I, I wouldn't write that part on piano. It sounds so stupid on piano. But on guitar, I was, like, just a little bit less fluent. And, and so I could write something really simple and be like, I like this. This is cool. But, you know, you, you cross a, a point where you get older and you start to really, stuff I didn't want to know back then, just some real, you know, guitar center shit. Just like, <laughs> now that I'm older, I actually do uh, enjoy it and I'll take lessons sometimes and uh, ask people more questions than I used to. Because on piano, I have like, a, on piano, I really can like understand music theory, but then guitar for a long time just was this other thing. So, yeah, I love to, I really enjoy just running a major scale in every position on the guitar. That's stuff you're supposed to do when you're 12, but I never did that. I was doing that on piano. You know? um, are, you, uh, are you still writing music for other folks? You know, not too often, because I've never actively pursued that. Um, the handful of times it's ever happened was bec- almost always because I was working on something that was maybe going to be for Vampire Weekend or ostensibly for Vampire Weekend, and then nothing happens with it and ends up in somebody else's hands. So it's been cool when it happens. And there's times I've wondered about it. Should I go, like, maybe that would produce some cool ideas just to to go do that? Because I'm into it on on paper, but, yeah, right now I, I don't feel like I have the energy to go actively pursue it. Like the people, because first of all, that's a whole rat race in and of itself. So I, I'm I'm kind of more into the idea that something like that falls into my lap every few years. Because you know, otherwise you got to go go to writing sessions and hope they are into your songs and you know all this stuff. So I'm pretty happy just directing most of my 
uh, attention towards Vampire Weekend because it just takes a lot of work to make an album. But I, I think I bet some stuff will pop up here and there. Would you ever score a movie? I'd maybe I'd be open to it for fun. But again, that's like that's a lot of work, too. And <laughs> if um, I don't I have some imaginary line in my head. I don't know if it's after the next album or after the sixth album or something when the, completing the second trilogy. Um, oh, OK, you feel like there's. I have this feeling of like navigating like a very interesting, crucial time in the discography story now. So I do feel like it's a little bit like all hands on deck in my mind for a minute. Maybe this is something that everybody says to themselves. Like I'm really absorbed with one task now and there's other things I'm interested in. I know once completed, that'll finally be, I'll be ready to spread my wings a little bit. And of course you could say that to yourself over and over again and never do anything else. So I got to keep an eye on that, but that's how I feel right now. Yeah. Um, and then what is an album you didn't appreciate until you got more into recording? Like when, when I became like a professional musician and yeah, like at, when you started to really understand how the sausage is made, what's an album that you were like, Oh man, like, I think I overlooked this. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, this maybe it doesn't exactly answer the question, but one thing's for sure. Like the, getting older and 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 making records like definitely opened my eyes to like appreciating like people's later work more so and i'm not even talking about now being in my 30s even when i was in my 20s i think when i was like 25 because i i first got um at a yard sale i got the songs of leonard cohen on vinyl um when i was say like 15 and I threw oh, wow. that shit all the time. And I was like, whoa, this is sick. For whatever reason, my parents like Bob Dylan and stuff. They didn't have any Leonard Cohen records. Don't know why exactly. They just weren't, weren't Cohen heads. Um, <laughs> so I was really, I was hearing those songs for the first time. Songs of Leonard Cohen, this is his first album. And he started late, but you know, he was still in his early 30s. He wasn't that old. Um, and I was like really blown away by it. And I loved his acoustic um essentially his early work his first three or four albums and occasionally i would hear uh some of i'm your man his kind of 80s synth reinvention and i was just like you know harshed out by it skeeved out like i just couldn't i couldn't reconcile it with what i liked about him in the first place i could i could see all right he still had a way with words whatever it just wasn't for me until i was like in my mid-20s and I think hearing like first we take Manhattan or everybody knows or um, even songs that I would have found really like cheesy as a teenager, like take this waltz. And suddenly I could just see it. Suddenly I just saw it differently. And I was like, man, this guy was in his fifties eating a banana on the cover. And just like the lyrics are like incredible. And actually the fact that he pulled off the, the synth thing and the drum machines, makes me respect it even more than the early work or something. So that I think maybe having been inside at that point, maybe Vampire Weekend had made two albums was around the time I got really deep into it. I think there was something because honestly, until you've made two albums, you don't know what it's like to, to go from point A to point B in a career. Um, and obviously the more you do, the more, you know, but like, you know, most people listen to music have made 
well, obviously a lot of people don't make any music, but let's say you're a musician. You might have put released some music, maybe made an album until you make like two albums and realize like, oh, there something really special happens with your first album because you're new and people hear you as new and people have no context for you. It really changes when you have a second album. Uh, and I'm not complaining. I think it's like a, a beautiful, interesting thing to a, a metamorphosis that happens. But anyway. I it, yeah. When I think about when I really got deep into "I'm Your Man," it was around that time. Damn. Yeah. Like that. That happened with me and uh, Warren Warren Zevin, or I don't know. Some people say Zivon. People love him, dude. Y- y- his lyrics very much slept on. Yeah, you know it's funny. I've always wondered if I would have a phase because I know a lot of his songs through other artists. Like my dad's always been a big fan of um the. Uh, the uh, Jewish country artist Kinky Friedman. I don't know if you're familiar with Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys. <laughs> his his first album is uh, incredible, and he's a, he's actually I saw him play in LA a couple years ago and hung out with him. He's cool as hell. Kinky Friedman's a real legend. Anyway, he covers a Warren Zevon song called "Like My Shit's Fucked Up," <laughs> and I was I was like I realized later that Warren Zevon wrote. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then very randomly back in the day. I always had I had this MP3 of uh, Jerry Garcia playing accidentally like a martyr. Mm-hmm. You know, accidentally like a martyr, the hurt gets worse and the heart gets harder. It sounds very Jerry when he does it, obviously. And I, I you know, back in the, that day, we have a lot of decontextualized MP3s. So I always listen to what this this like random Jerry Garcia song, "Accidentally Like a Martyr," and I didn't put together that it was Warren Zevon. So. I've had a lot of things in my taste pointing me towards him because I know all like the people, all like Bob Dylan and Jerry and all these people loved him, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like now he would be like a light in the attic band or something in the sense where it's just like all the like industry folks loved him, but he never really had the commercial success that his admirers had. <laughs> Again, never having gone deep, but that he, him being like a guy with some re- real emotion in his writing, but also like a bit of a ironic detachment, or at least like a, you know, I, th- I think he wrote that song. I was talking about my shit's fucked up when he was diagnosed with cancer, just like somebody with a sense of humor, like not, yeah. not unaware of the intense things out there, not not unwilling to tackle them, but just always having that slight, you know, half smile vibe. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, there, there's someone who can like, can make bad things humorous. Uh, that That's a very rare gift to be able to find comedy within tragedy. Uh, yeah. No, I think a lot of the greats do. Yeah. Um, this is the last, probably one of the most important questions What's happening with Neo Yokio? Are you are you going to make the triumphant return to the silver screen? I don't know. I mean, it's ba- <laughs> on ice. The n- nobody's beating down my door outside of fans. I got actually a lot of fans beating down my door trying to ask when it's going to be, but nobody in the industry is. And I don't know. There, weirdly, there's something coming down the pipeline, but it's it's not it's not it's not a new season just somebody reached out about doing a kind of neo collaboration and I can't say more until it's a little more real, but um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the one thing I'll say is like, uh, again, I've, I've been in the back in the Vampire Weekend Zone for a few years now, and I'm continuing to be a thing about the next record. I will. One thing I'll say about it, and we always talked about it, like, yeah, sometimes it does pop into my mind because I think it, you know, as this like kind of like satirical altered as a satirical alternative universe, we could pick it up in any medium at any time. Like when I think like there, I, I was, I always thought it would be cool to do uh, like a graphic novel, like a manga of it, just because I want, you know, like when you go to like a bookstore and you see like, like some beautiful volumes of like Akira. Oh yeah. Really classic manga. And just like, looks so good. And I'm not talking about like the slim little, you know, volumes i'm talking about like the big fat collector's editions there's a part of me that's like imagine like some like you know foil wrapped neo yokio just like big fat one i was like we could really have some fun with that um so who knows that some something could happen but i i think like when the time is right it it won't be a difficult thing to kind of awaken from its slumber because like i said the it, it because it's it's just a a kind of like inverted mirror of reality what what wherever point we're at in history we can just do the neo yokio version of it just like you know the first season was kind of based to me on like kind of what i was seeing on like social media um and we just made this kind of like bizarre cartoon version so i think we it you know we'll pick it up one day one way or honestly it's like the only thing i've ever really done outside of music and i don't know it's and in some ways like part of part of why i like music is because we make an album you put it out there and then you know like i was talking about the importance of touring the community that comes with that then uh i love you know being on like text chain with chris and chris and we're just like talking about ideas for what we should do next time we go on tour because you keep the things alive. You keep the songs stay alive forever. That's true. Talk about, we can, you know, I'm sure next time we go on tour, we'll probably like come up with like some fun thing to do with like a song from the first album. Cause it's, it's alive. You know, you go play it for a bunch of people and they react to, you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it is funny with something like Neo Yokio where, you know, you make it, it's hosted on this other platform and then it's just kind of like, yeah, of course I get messages from people being like, Oh, are you going to make more of that or saying something? But it's just like, and maybe we've been spoiled. Maybe music is the place where you have the most active kind of like thriving relationship with things. But like, there's just no equivalent of like the tour, (laughs) I guess is what I'm saying. So you're right. It's, yeah, like I'll, I'll, from time to time, people hit me up like, "I just rewatched that." I'm just be like, "Oh, it just it just feels so it's in its own universe compared to like music." I mean, that's the one thing I think that streaming. W- one of the few things that I think streaming is just made up amazing in the sense that you can like my little brother discovers, uh, you know, music from the '70s like now, and like he's he's hearing some of these albums as like, wow, like this, this is like, it's brand new, you know? And I feel like at least before streaming, I would never, unless I was like hanging out with like Matador folks, I would never like go and like find old records. Like it, my mind was just so focused on newness at all times that like, but now everything is kind of new at the same time. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, people, everything is just kind of out there. It's like campus from the first Vampire Weekend albums like went viral on TikTok. You just have like Dude, kind of getting in that way. It's yeah, it's, it is. Uh, it was like number one on your Spotify. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you got like close to seven million people a month listening to your tunes. And what's cool is like the stuff that people were listening to. You know, there's some. Yeah, it was campus, and then some of the stuff from the from the earlier albums. Yeah, it's cool that it's like. I mean, that's kind of the way that I. Again, to go back to this idea of like. Um, that your discography should tell a story. I mean, in some ways it's not that deep. It's like your life is a story, often a boring story, but you know, as Joe Walsh of the Eagles said in <laughs> Eagles doc, which that's something I go back to very often in terms of really. Oh yeah. Oh, like me, people like Jake from time crisis and like a lot of my music friends, that's just, we just love that so much. Cause it's just so much about like the, goofiness of being in a band the crazy personalities don henley glenn fry rest in peace don felder the way they talk about each other it's just vicious <laughs> yeah vicious and just hilarious but anyway joe walsh he's the best he gives off the best vibes and it and he has this line that i always think of where he says i don't know if he was quoting somebody else but he, he says something about like when you're moving through life it often feels like a series of random chaotic incidents that have nothing to do with each other and then when you look backwards it has the feeling of being a finely crafted novel <laughs> damn damn joe i mean he is a fucking way with words he's a great songwriter so i shouldn't be surprised but yeah when i when i think about your disco anybody's discography if if your music remotely keeps up with where you're at in your life hopefully it will have a feeling when you look back and there's a bit of a fun <laughs> A finely crafted novel in there um but uh when i think about that too and and like you asked me earlier is it a linear thing well the way that i think about it is like and also with music i you know i'm so familiar with the the vampire weekend universe because like, people hit me about that all the time and and like we run that business ourselves we have it's different like than making a streaming show for netflix vampire weekend we run the business ourselves um so we just have way more info metrics all that shit um and so i know for a fact there we we have people who like got into us on father of the bride who are just like ah, i didn't like that college shit but like now you're becoming like men like <laughs> you know we have people like that kind of like getting in or like seeing us in a different light through that album um and i definitely had a lot of people hitting me up and um i happened to become a father in the year leading up to that record but as I've taken great pains to say often in the press, which rarely makes a difference, it's kind of like, yeah, well, you know, like, of course I wrote these songs all before I even knew I was going to be a dad, but still there's father in the title. So people will hear that record. And, and of course there's some nods to what some people call dad rock on the record. So there's a lot of things pointing in a certain direction. Um, I would just say it's about like getting older, whether you have a kid or not, you're getting older. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, for real. With that, uh, with that record, I did get a lot of notes from people being like, "Yo, I connected with this record like in like a way I hadn't with the other ones. Maybe, be, maybe it's because I just became a dad, and I know you're going through." This. And I don't want to be on some like, um, actually, because of course we are we're all getting older together. And whether you have whether you choose to have children or not, one way or another, you're becoming more of an adult, and you're 
not a lot you're gonna have a lot of the same thoughts so the way i think about it is like in in the story you're telling through your records there's like a lot of different ways in and some of the people who got in on the fourth album i've this is not an uncommon thing i've heard from that type of particular listener who probably thought our first couple albums were like annoying or something um uh and and they said you know the the last couple records made me like the first two more i'm like all right i'll take it sure why not i'd agree with that yeah oh, okay that, that's how you uh, no absolutely i mean i think because i think you're you're multi-dimensional you know i mean you go oh, okay first couple albums uh i feel like are easily more digestible right like they're fun there it's it's a very quick listen right like even the the length of oh yeah yeah right of the first album i mean that's that's a quick album and you know and it, there's just like a lot of high energy right and and so like there's that but then you get into ballads i mean you could say like there's some ballads on on the earlier stuff but like who am i to like tell you what your music is yeah, but like barely going from modern vampires of the city mm-hmm. to father of the bride then jumping back because you're like, well, great, like this music's over and and I need to listen to more Vampire Weekend and it's not out. So I'll go and I'll listen to the first two ones. And knowing that like the capability and the potential was there to make these other albums, like you hear the other stuff and you're like, oh, I wonder if they were, I wonder if this song was written at like this time period or like there's this chord progression that kind of like goes through here. I mean, like. No, that's it. Yeah. Never hope for is that people might do that. But also I was, uh, and and that's amazing if if that can happen because that means people are getting in a little harder with the new stuff but going backwards but then of course in our case our first album is way bigger than the other ones well not way i mean in some ways we've been very consistent but just like having a punk on the first album and now campus going viral on tiktok and then oxford common shit just like there there's there's like a memeiness to to the songs on the on that first album uh that naturally like yeah i don't, I don't even know with campus now but with i remember there's one time where I, I was looking at the stats and i was like whoa <laughs> month a punk gets more streamed than the entire modern vampires album put together and that was like far and away our best like critically received album in by some standards and and I was like, whoa. And look, you need all those things in a catalog to make it interesting. But I think on the flip side, there's going to be people who are going to get into those immediate early songs, uh, more people, and some percentage of them might eventually appreciate some of the later stuff. Some of them might not. It's all good, you know? I'm actually surprised you look at that data. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't. No, I like to know. I, I no, no, I mean, it's fine. I mean, you're... You- clearly have a level head i mean well here's the thing it's too easy to see now it's like uh you could have like the app on your phone and just like literally open it every day i stopped doing that but i'm still interested because like i like to know how things like i like to have a sense of that stuff i think you have you can't let it drive you crazy because if you um well, like, so for instance, if I looked one day, like I did once and saw, whoa, A-Punk gets more streams in a month than the whole Modern Vampires album. If I was like on some like business school shit, I could be like, my goal for the next album is to have 10 A-Punks. <laughs> It'd be so idiotic because 
of course, we have probably some deeper fans who got in via that album because that album means a lot to them. And they, would, they wouldn't even give a fuck if A-Punk vanished off the face of the earth. You know what I mean? So I mean, yeah, we, I understand fans like that. So anyway, I think these things happen in both directions. And then I've, I've said this before, but I've always so people, some people getting in here, some people getting in there. Some you got stepbrother entries, which is a movie I've seen maybe six hundred times. One of the greatest um, of all time. We're very lucky that, that that was our first big sink. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you have people getting in all different ways, um, and I don't know. I think that's what it, I think. Eventually, that's what I like about the artists that I look up to. Can can you again? Everybody's going to have their own favorite songs and records in anybody's catalog but here's the thing can you imagine that other people might have a different entry point from you because in some cases there's some artists where you literally can't you're like first album's the best anybody who questions that is a psycho (laughs) to be in a band where at least there's well and i think it's the difference between bands that stay the same and bands that change because that's the that's the trade-off if if you if we tried to go for like a punk every single time afterwards, I wouldn't even know what that would mean. Um, I don't think you'd be very happy. I don't think you'd be happy. Uh, it would be bizarre. But even if we tried that, it just you might be increasing your chances of having another kind of like stepbrothers <laughs> hit, <laughs> but you would actually decrease your chances of people connecting to you as an artist because they would know you were just like some weird like gambler. <laughs> have you talked with are you friends with kevin parker no I, what what you just spoke about is something that he speaks about a lot and he wrestles oh, really? with uh-huh clearly a very wise man and i i mean that's a band who i'm sure every day because they the uh currents produced like some giant giant songs which again even if like i remember when i first heard elephant and i was just like I was like, this rules. I was like, it's kind of retro, but like, it's it still doesn't feel that retro in a weird way. And there's like a meta commentary in the lyrics, and it's got like, just like the the chug of it. Like, was sick. It was like the first classic rock song I'd heard in, um, in decades since I was. I mean, it's since I was a young man in the early seventies. It was the first <laughs> classic. It was the first straight up classic <laughs> rock song I'd heard in such a long time that I was just like, this rules. You, you can't can't like. You can't. That, I mean, that is a banger of a song. I mean, it was funny yeah. to think that, but then of course, uh, and I think he's been he's been very consistent uh, through his career. But it's funny to think like when I first heard that song, I was like, "Well, come on, that's it. This is their Seven Nation Army. This is their creep." I don't know. And then to think, well, of course that I was I was locked into some like old school like raised on classic rock thinking because actually their seven nation army turned out to be like a kind of groovier song on their next album, which is, yeah. And of course elephant was a big song, but what what am I talking about? I'm talking about what's the big song on currents. Uh, the biggest song on currents is the less I know the better. Okay. Right. So the less- or let it happen is probably the, uh, is probably the one that people listen to the most. But like, I mean, if you're looking at like just total number of plays, you got close to 800 million. <laughs> That's yeah. how, many, how many plays does Elephant have? And 147. And actually, feels like we only go backwards, which 
I, I'm not a fan of that song at all is 250 million. You know, I, I would make the case that that he he's a very wise man. I think he's I think there's a lot of like heart in what you know when if he if he goes from just some like blues based classic rock to some like groovier 80s shit. I believe it's because that's where his his artistic sensibility and his heart has taken him. And yeah, okay, so like one, those songs turned out to be the ones that Right Place, Right Time got 800 million streams and the the one that I would have called to be like the game changer has a mere 147. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, I don't know. I think like if you, you know, you, you stay on the path, like, I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot too. Like no artist always has the wind at their back. Like, and I haven't released four records. I've, I know what it feels like to just know when the wind's at your back and to feel like a slight headwind. I would mm. crushing headwind, but you know, and I'm not, and I'm not saying like personally for Vampire Weekend, but like, you know, you just look at the lay of the land. Like if, if you can look back on the past few years and feel like none of your peers like knocked it out of the park, not artistically, I'm not judging anybody artistically, but like, you know, like our first album hit a sweet spot. It's produced, produced at the, over this past decade, at least a few like kind of viral type song moment things. And I think it has to do with the music and the quality of the music and all that shit. But also it has to do with like when it came out and when it was the cultural significance behind it. Yeah. And so that that's a record where like the winds were really at our back. And of course, there's some headwinds. You get haters or whatever. But again, that's still, you know what the net effect is. And I've been thinking about that a lot. Like, especially as you get older, you just. You can't call on the wind. No man. Call the wind. <laughs> you can't. You can't ask Mother Nature to send the winds to your back because, you know, that's just these things come and go. And you find these bizarre things where something connects and you didn't expect it to. You can't call that. You got to be more like Prince, man. And yeah, in some ways. I mean, he's an, had an incredible career. And yeah, so it's because you can't call on the wind to do you any favors. No man can. You have to you kind of just have to go with your gut and like do something real. And then, you know, then maybe if you're lucky, you'll look back and say like, you know, tailwinds, headwinds, it didn't matter. Like you found the audience no matter what. It, yeah. You, you, you know, you just, you just keep like doing, going with your gut and then like, you'll always be okay. I think to be honest, the thing that the biggest takeaway from this whole pod, which I'm very shocked by and, and really honored is like understanding a bit more about the like creative angst of songwriting and the fact of like, the life that exists post work of art. Yeah. Well, and, and, and in some ways I think the more angst, the better on the front end, because once you put something out into the world, like that's that, that's, that's your entry for chapter three for chapter four. And of course you can always turn, take the story in a new direction in chapter five or something, but like it it's it's almost like you have to it, you have to treat it as high stakes before it comes out and then after that you have to just be really confident and just be like this shit rules like you know <laughs> do you do you have a barometer that you use that's like a, a trusted source whether it's another musician or a family member or someone whom 
like they're they're ten for ten on their judgment of your uh of your work, or is that always you? No, I I, I love playing stuff for people. I always have, but the the thing is, there's no one person because that's another thing that if I've learned anything over these years of being a music fan, being a musician, is just like the the world is so segmented. You know, like every uh. I, th- I think it's really cool when you can make something that connects with, um, you know, uh, New York, London-based um, aesthetes, um, but also, like, put up some real numbers in the heartland. Like, it's cool when you can do that. When you can make sure that that kind of, like, some cool people, uh, some quote-unquote cool people like, but that also, like, puts up real numbers. You know, it's a good feeling to make, like, a lot of people aspire to that to make a cultural product that's not just some like coastal bullshit, but that like feels cool, but also feels like big, you know, that's a good feeling. But um, again, the world is so segmented that when I, I, when I play stuff for people, I, I think I have like five or six people that I really trust because, you know, it's so, it's so easy when you listen, when you're kind of in a certain worldview and you know this well, like, especially with like music, like there's, you get a lot of groupthink in, um, well, at least you did in the bygone era of like <laughs> based indie labels and artists and shit. You know, it's a very specific slice of humanity that creates that worldview. And so, you know, I know people who know whatever you want to call that, the old school indie worldview inside and out. And I love playing the music for them because they'll, they'll connect to it. But then I have other people in my life who not only don't give a fuck about that worldview, are actively hostile towards it because you got also remember some shit that like <laughs> for when we came out whatever you want indie hipster alternative whatever it was very cool um in a sense but just as many people despised it because it represented elitism or bullshit that's one thing i'm proud of is that for of all the elitist bands that came out of new york vampire weekend got tagged the most as being elitist and yet i think we've I think the heads understand that actually our worldview is very not elitist. And that's why, that's why we, we can go sell records and tickets outside of Brooklyn. You know, you know, no, you, your career, like, I don't know if it's, I, I imagine it's mostly you, but I don't know if it's all monotone or what, but like you guys have dodged and overcome and circumvented every single possible pitfall or any like it's fucking it's pretty incredible especially when you look at a lot of the other bands at that I time. wouldn't say that we've had we've had people we always have people kind of like coming for us but I guess the again if the songs connect and you actually have a real connection with your fans it doesn't matter what like one or two people if one or two people hate you or well I think I think a lot of it's because of you in the sense that like regardless you're you're the face and the figurehead of the brand and like you're someone that people only want to see win. I don't think anyone wants to see you fall on your face. I yeah, I I mean it's hard it's hard for me to hear that and and agree with it just cuz you know, we all feel like again, I've like all sure. of us out there we just feel like, you know, it's it's a hostile world and whatever, but but I will say that I I've always had this feeling where it's like People still, and again, I think this is a good thing probably is that the first album was so associated with an aesthetic, which very little music is, which is preppiness, that people still make jokes. People sent me memes when we were like kind of coming back with the last record being like, 
oh new vampire weekends out and they like post like a like a polo ad with a bunch of dudes going to like row crew yeah, i saw that so and which again i i find like funny I, it doesn't have feelings anymore <laughs> if anything it's like good like all right people, we're, we're like the one preppy band all right cool um, but the truth is like i don't know when when I think, and of course, I have a pretty unique insight into this because I've been to every Vampire Weekend show. I've met the most hardcore fans. When I consider like the archetypal, like hardcore fans, they, I, of course, we have some in the big cities. Like, you know, we have a special connection in New York, sure. But like, I don't know. They, they live in other parts of the world, other parts of the country. They don't, they didn't necessarily like go to college. We, I don't know. We have, uh, actually, when I think it's not an Ivy League band, like it's funny, it's not a bunch of Harvard kids. I actually think of the archetypal Vampire Weekend hater. I actually picture somebody who went to Harvard more than I picture the fans. I don't know, like our, I don't know. Maybe hopefully there's some fans hearing that and, and seeing themselves in it. I just think they, you know, they get it. They understand that, like we're, they understand the playfulness. They understand like the aspirational element. They. Yeah, I don't know. So, so that's uh, I've definitely taken some pride in that over the past decade plus, as we've actually gone from being just like some one exciting album, kind of like fun thing to debate and go to some fun shows, you know, to to something that's closer to a career. Um, and I don't think you can have a career based on that one dimensional vibe you get off of uh, an exciting first album or even exciting first two albums. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for sharing so much of the, of like your mindset and stuff. I'm I'm not going to lie. Like, this is a very special one for me as, as someone who's really loved and admired you, your music and your guys's career. It's, it's, it's pretty special. Um, on that last note, do you think Daft Punk will reunite for the most money of any tour in history? <laughs> I think, I think the Daft Punk breakup is bullshit. I was very confused by it, and and I think you're right to find something kind of off about it. I mean, it's funny. I was on, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners were, I was on a text thread with my boys <laughs> to discuss <laughs> the Daft Punk breakup, and I said, I was kind of like, what does everybody make of this? Um, and I said, the the kind of fake out uh, the fake out retirement thing seems beneath them because I think of them as being people who only do what they want to do um, and who are, you know, very dedicated to like being, being like cool. It's like a che- at this point, the fake out retirement thing is cheesy. And then, and so I was like, I, that seems beneath them. And then one of my friends wrote back, I mean, their whole thing is that they DJ in masks. <laughs> they're invincible robots yeah and then suddenly i felt like the uh i felt like the 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 crying uh like music fan wojack who's like no actually the the master of commentary you know and then like, uh like making money like no you don't understand that that's commentary um so that made me realize like what am i talking about i don't fucking know it, yeah maybe it is just a big fake out uh i think and, and you know what? To be fair, it's 
I could see them deciding that they're not making any, maybe they've been kicking stuff around for the past few years and maybe they realize, you know what? We had a four album arc that told the story we wanted to tell perfectly. Let's let people know that that canon is now closed and why not put up one last tour? I guess it wouldn't be quite as, could you really, could you really cry foul if they put up one more tour? Would you really say, but you said you retired. <laughs> when they posted like the, 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 the hands coming together and said 93 to 2021, it's not like there was fine print that said like, uh, by this, we mean there will never be any future tours. Like, but, all, to me, that implies they're no longer making new music. Oh, okay. So actually, the more I think about it, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be feel like faked out as a fan if they put up one last stick tour, right? Oh, they, they're going to do at least one, if not a couple more tours. There's too much money on the line, I think. And also, like Thurston Moore has been quoted on multiple occasions that his biggest regret is not breaking up Sonic Youth. <laughs> Uh, um to to reunite for massive tours right yes and daft punk well daft punk last tour was 2007 right and yeah alive the beloved tour and it was huge so yeah with them it's not even just like it's not even trying to like say like someone else and also they uh, there's something meaningful about them kind of like closing the canon and then putting on a show to celebrate it because they never actually did a tour for the last record. So yeah, for random. Yeah. Kind of OS one. And yeah, I'm sure it'll be sick. And I'll, and in their case too, it, it's, it's like, again, maybe I just, the reason why I said that on my text thread about like, I don't know, I don't think it, well, I was, I think I was wrong, but I was just trying to say like, they strike me as like dignified. It's not like, not just like, Hey, you guys hate each other. What if you get back together? You know, like you never quite sold out the will turn, man. <laughs> and actually the promoter is, I don't know what he's thinking, but he added a little bit extra money. Well, actually, again, whatever. We all know money, so there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm saying like the idea of people just like paying you an extra, some extra money just to go do something you really don't want to do. Well, that's life, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what am I saying? I respect all of it, but I'm just saying in the case of Daft Punk, they can, they can put on a dignified tour that doesn't feel like they were drawn out of retirement uh, by filthy lucre. You know, they, when they, when they put on this tour, it'll feel like uh, two French people who decided they wanted to put the perfect button on a career. That's how it'll feel. And, the, and I'm sure they cooked up something like they did the pyramid. I don't know. This is going to be like a big donut, something like <laughs> they're, they're, I'm sure I almost, yeah, may, it wouldn't shock me because they're so conceptual. If they're wait, they were waiting around after this album, the tour idea didn't quite come. They're like, what do we do after the pyramid? They couldn't think they couldn't figure out what shape comes next. And maybe in maybe the sitting at home during COVID, they finally realized it. And they're like, okay, initiate. Um, the final phase <laughs> and publicly. And then we're going to go do a tour that truly blows people's minds. But at the same time, I would also, there's something kind of appealing too about if they, if they don't do another tour and you're just like, what was up with that? Why did you just drop it like eight years after your last album? Right? Exactly. See, that's the thing, right? Like no one was wondering about what Daft Punk's doing anyway. <laughs> we thought it was funny to actually go out like that. Fair play. Either way, I'm down. Yeah. <laughs> all right well sick man great talking to you and yes sir 
Well, it was a pleasure talking, and I will chat with you soon some way. All right, see ya. Have a good one. Bye. You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. Theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast. And if you can't stop and need all the hot content, join us on Patreon for tons of exclusive episodes, our private Slack group, merch hookups, and all the fun you can ever imagine. I'm Jeremy Kirkland. I'll see you next week.